the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Well, on today's program, a special conversation with Bay Area pastor of Calvary Chapel, The Rock, located in Santa Rosa. We're delighted to have with us today, Pastor Ross Reinman. Pastor Reinman, welcome. Good to have you with us. And thanks, Craig. It's uh, great to be here and, uh, you know, to see you uh, here uh, after all those years of commuting uh, uh, in the car together. I don't know if you were aware of that. Yeah, I but, might not uh, have been aware of that. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not always that that, that attentive uh, of, of who I might be riding with, but I appreciate that and uh, and delight, yeah, delight to be like seen. What are they, like they say, great to, be, like, great to see you and good to be seen. Well, Pastor, yeah. lots to talk about, but I want to begin kind of turning back the clock to your own spiritual journey, and I'm fascinated. I understand your conversion took place on the streets of San Francisco. Tell me more. It, it did. It was pretty amazing. My my Jewish father became a Christian at 55, and uh, I was 18 years old, and uh, I have three siblings as well in their teens, and we thought he went crazy um, and started reading his Bible all the time. And uh, I moved out to get away from the gospel, and so I moved to San Francisco, where I thought maybe God couldn't find me. Uh, come to find out that the Lord is... <laughs> living in the city as well. And so, uh, yeah, I had uh, street preachers, uh, people talking to me at work, all kinds of um, people, just I call it the year I got ambushed by God. And uh, yeah, lo and behold, my brother and I were in a uh, club and we were underage at the time. And I sort of had a vision, I call it an audio a vision where the Lord was just really speaking to me. And so the room kind of got blurry and I got a little nauseous and I hadn't been drinking. And I heard a voice in my head that said, why will you go to hell when you don't have to? And it kept repeating and repeating. And uh, I don't even remember walking out of the bar, but my brother walked me out and on the sidewalk, uh, I just told my brother, I think that Jesus that dad talks about is talking to me. And telling me not to go to hell, but to come to heaven with him. And I thought my brother was going to uh, uh, kind of talk me down and, and offer to buy me a beer or something. And instead, he started crying. And he said that the Lord had been speaking to him as well. And right there and then, we bowed our heads with no Christian around at all and said a simple little prayer. Uh, God, you're right. Uh, we surrender our lives to you. And uh, that uh, same afternoon, we drove down to Santa Cruz, where my dad managed a hotel at the time and busted through the doors. I'm like, Mom and Dad, we're Christians. And uh, I had a vision. And, uh, and then uh, my mother, who had been tolerating my dad for a year, just listening, you know, as an unbeliever, she became a Christian uh, on that day because uh, she said, I know there's a God in heaven uh, when my boys come in and start talking about the Lord. And so my dad uh, that day led us all, the whole family was there and led us all on our knees. <laughs> it's very moving to even think about it. Uh, that was in 1979 and we all prayed together and we all got baptized in the same uh, baptismal uh, tank there in the Christian Life Center in Santa Cruz. So that's how it started. <laughs> the, the, the hound of heaven pursuing you. I love that story. And, you yeah. know, it, it goes to sort of that Romans 1 notion that God will indeed, the Holy Spirit will pursue us and will draw mm. us and will convict of sin. And uh, it's exciting to hear those kinds of stories because it's just demonstrative of how passionate his love for us and in a sense of, uh, and I mean this in a real good way, a sense of desperation 
that God has in wanting to have relationship with his creation, so much so that he recognized, you know what, I've got to provide a pathway because watching the children of Israel trying to keep the Sabbath and keep the law and make the sacrifices just wasn't sufficient. But he came up with a way that would be a complete sufficiency for all sin, for all mankind, for all time. And that's that's pretty amazing in that gift of Jesus Christ, isn't it? Right. And and he was pursuing long before we even knew about it. True. That's his love. You know, we, we were living in Boston and my dad, uh, what got us out to California and to Santa Cruz is my dad had a bankruptcy and he got in trouble with the law uh, in a business sense of that and wanted to run. And so uh, we decided yeah, in those days, in the 70s, no computers or anything. You could run and hide, you know. So my dad, um, we got out at the encyclopedia and we looked at a map of California and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, hey, let's just go here, this place, Santa Cruz, or no rhyme or reason, Santa Cruz, from all unbelievers. And uh, we just got on a, like a midnight flight and uh, we, we, lend, we landed in L.A., but we did eventually start living in Santa Cruz. And in Santa Cruz is a Bible college mm-hmm. that my brother and I would graduate from. You see, so when we went down to uh, tell my dad that we had found the Lord, uh, we moved back to Santa Cruz, and then we ended up going to a church that was affiliated with that Bible college, and both my brother and I, who had walked out six months earlier from a club in San Francisco and got saved on the sidewalk, uh, ended up in the Bible college in Santa Cruz, where we just picked out of a map uh, in New England <laughs> as a place to run away. Yeah. You you think you just picked it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying is that God's been out. You know, he, he knew us from eternity past. And when he's got his eye on you, you know, you just should come peacefully. Yeah, you know, when de- demonstrative of the idea that you can run from trouble, you can run from the law, you can run from reality— but you can't run very far from the Holy Spirit, can you? No, Craig, I was on. I was an unbeliever running from Dad and, and his Jesus. I was standing at, on, at Powell Street waiting for the cable car. And um, there was a guy street preaching, and I was hiding in the crowd. And I just thought, he's going to find me. I just know he's going to find me. And sure enough, he walks through the crowd. He walks up to me and says, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And I said, no, I don't, but I have a funny feeling I'm going to. And he laughed, and he asked me why. And I said, well, my dad just became a Christian. He's Jewish. We're not supposed to believe in Jesus. And uh, everywhere I go, somebody's got a sign or hands me a tract. And it's like I can't get away from this God. And uh, he tried to lead me, but it just wasn't the right moment. You know, I needed that smackdown in, in the bar. Uh, to get my attention. Is there a message, in your opinion, Pastor Ross, for, for every person eavesdropping on our conversation right now that has fear over loved ones, maybe a wayward son or a daughter or a parent that's been resistive toward the gospel? And I ask that question because what utter irony, the city of San Francisco that has such a reputation for, you know, the the, the center of love back in the 1960s and Vietnam protests and San Francisco has always had a bit of a contrarian bent to it. And so I, I would kind of incur, concur with you that one might think that a half-Jewish boy from Boston could run to San Francisco and hide from God there, and yet, as we said earlier, the hound of heaven <laughs> manages to find you anyway. And isn't it just like God and in the place that you would think would be the least likely, likely that you would have an encounter with the living God would be on the streets of San Francisco, and yet there it was. Is, is there That's a message right. of hope to every person out there who has a loved one that has resisted the gospel? Well, sure. I, I tell people, look, God loves them more than we could ever love them, and that we didn't create them. God created them using us, but they belong to God. And and God's heart is, you know, 
Yeah, God our God our Savior wants everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth, and He's not willing that anyone perish. And uh, I love Ezekiel thirty three eleven. He says, uh, "Surely as I live, says the Lord." I take no delight in the death of the wicked, rather that they turn to me and live. You see, so I just know God's heart, and I trust that he is after uh, everybody because he doesn't want anybody to perish. And he listens to our prayers, and he knows the burdens on our hearts. And uh, so... He is working in those loved ones' lives, even though we can't see anything on the outside, you know. That wonderful parable, the the image of the shepherd leaving the flock momentarily to go and retrieve the one lost sheep. And while that kind of imagery today, you know, few of us grew up on farms, might not be able to completely grasp the totality of the message, but Mm -hmm. once you do— and begin to sort of realize that imagery in your own mind and then apply it to your own life, that image of uh, the shepherd Jesus going out after us and retrieving us, pulling us back in some cases from the brink of death and destruction in the edge of the cliff, so to speak. What a joy, what a delight to know that he's that passionate about wanting to, to save us and to walk in fellowship with us. Yeah, if you look at the cross, and I mean, Isaiah says, after that brutal beating, you know, he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. And that's what God went through so that nobody would perish. And so uh, his heart is just that I, I love that parable when he sends out his workers, the king uh, sends them out, uh, inviting everybody to this beautiful banquet, i.e. heaven. And uh, he says, uh, go through the highways and the byways into the hedges and in- invite everyone uh, the poor and the lame and uh, uh, the good and the bad, he says, that my house might be full, you know, that's his heart. And so uh, we just rest in his love. Uh, just give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of, of what God is doing at Calvary Chapel, The Rock in Santa Rosa. Well, uh, for the summer, uh, Wednesday night, 630, we have uh, study through the Psalms. That's what we do. And uh, right now we're in First Peter chapter 3. We go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Um, so we have, eight, uh, we have an 8 o'clock service, 9.30 and 11.30 at, uh, on Sundays. And uh, there's young adults that's like, oh, my goodness. There's like 75 young adults that come out. They have food together. They're going through the Gospel of Luke right now. They have a lot of fun together. The ladies' Bible studies, there's like three different ones and uh, all all wonderful studies. The men are having a um, Bible study kick, kicking off uh, this fall. Uh, so next month, uh, we're in the Book of James. Um, the youth the youth group and the middle schoolers. Uh, we have Awana uh, starting up, uh, the child discipleship uh, program there where they memorize the scriptures and have a lot of fun and uh, just learn to know the Lord. And so, uh, yeah, it's busy, busy, busy. You know, I, I would say the church is all about really uh, teaching the Bible. We're a Bible teaching church. And if you want to learn about the Bible, um, the Rock's a good place to, to start. Uh, we also preach the gospel there. So, uh, you know, we give altar calls and uh, we're all about people coming to know the Lord. And then missions. Missions is the big deal. And so that's kind of the heartbeat of the church. And so uh, we're available here. Here we are on Piner Road uh, still uh, looking for that uh, place. So pray for us uh, you uh, Christians out there, because uh, we really need a place to settle down and put in some roots. So. It's a good good problem to have, though. Well, we invite you to check out Calvary Chapel, The Rock. They meet at 915 G Piner Road in Santa Rosa. Pastor, we appreciate you sharing with us today, and I look forward to getting a chance to visit with you again, Pastor. It's been a real delight. Calvary Chapel, The Rock, located again in Santa Rosa, online at cctherock.org. Right, praise the Lord, it's time to get started. We are going to ask the Lord for 
his encouragement and his um, ability to enlighten us. Amen. <laughs> Father God, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts now. Help us to understand these truths here as the beautiful book of Acts is closing out with these invaluable lessons and insights for us. Mostly about prevailing when evil's all around God and hardship at every turn. But those who do the will of God prevail in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the infamous story of Chippy the Parakeet is the stuff legends are made of. <laughs> Chippy the Parakeet never saw it coming. One second, he was perched in his cage, and the next minute, he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problem began when Chippy's owner wanted to clean the cage out with the vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the hose and stuck it in the cage, and then her phone rang. <laughs> she turned and picked it up. She barely said hello when <laughs> Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped. She put down the phone, she turned off the vacuum, opened the bag, and sure enough, there was Chippy, still alive, but stunned. <laughs> Since the bird was covered with so much dust, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under the running water. Realizing Chippy was now soaked, Shivering, She did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the blow dryer. <laughs> and she blasted her pet with a little hot air pick-me-up to fluff him up. And poor Chippy just never knew what hit him. A few days later, after the trauma, neighbors popped in to see how the bird was recovering. And the owner said, well... Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just kind of sits there and stares. <laughs> and that's not hard to see why, right? Sucked in, washed up, and blown over. <laughs> Enough to steal a song from the stoutest of hearts. Unless, of course, you're the Apostle Paul, who, in quite literal terms has been sucked into a typhoon in the Adriatic Sea on a ship that's taking him as a prisoner to stand before the emperor, blown over as in a gale force wind that crashes the ship upon the jagged rocks there, breaks it into pieces off of some island there, causing everyone to jump overboard and into the sea, washed up. Yeah, exactly. That's how the last verse of the last chapter, chapter 27, describes Paul and the 276 men on board, how they came to shore. And I quote, floating on planks or on other pieces of the ship, in this way, everyone reached land safely as they washed up on the beach, sucked in, blown over, washed up an apt description of the last month, just the last month of three decades of a very hard life. The Paul, Paul the Apostle's ministry there. But there's a difference between a spirit-filled believer and a bird, you see, because as Chippy just sits around and stares, Paul keeps serving and keeps singing as all who call on the name of the Lord. Uh, chapter 28, now verse 1. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta, Melita in uh, ancient days. Verse 2, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and warmed us all because it was raining cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand by its fangs. 
That's not very clear there, but it bit him. The, the islanders know what's going on. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer because though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire where it belonged and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall over dead. But after waiting a long, long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said, he's a god. <laughs> so that's our text. We might make it to 7 and 8, which is a little PS, but this is the paragraph for us to reflect upon uh, this morning. And oh my goodness, I have written here, will it ever end for this man? <laughs> you and I think that we have it bad sometimes, but sucked in, blown over, washed up, and now bitten by a viper. What's amazing is that he's just able to shake it off as he does most of his troubles. And this, of course, is why we have this passage and why these things are happening to show Christians who are often in the midst of storms how to conduct themselves, how to think about such things as adversity. So that's really Paul's contribution to Christianity cannot be overstated. My word, 13 New Testament uh, books written uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, of course, He's evangelizing the world there in the Roman Empire. Uh, but he's also modeling. His life is speaking to us. This is how Christians behave when your life is turned upside down. And he will tell his friends, whatever things you see in me or hear from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Philippians chapter 4, you see. He tells the Corinthians, follow me, imitate me, as I imitate Christ. So he knows that it's not enough just to teach somebody something, and that truth is often more times caught than just taught, you see. So he's modeling for us uh, how to handle when the viper bites and the viper does bite. And so that's why we're paying attention here. And uh, now, as uh, the book of Acts is closing out, you know, the story's coming to a close. And really, is we're going to find that the story ends pretty much how it began. It's pretty simple. The gospel, the good news that there's a way to be saved, and Jesus laid down his life, died for our sins, that whoever puts their trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life, that has gone out into the world. Some receive it with joy, and they're radically transformed by God's amazing grace, his love, his power. And others we hear the message and are hostile and apathetic. And they push back in the form of persecution. That's been the story. The story of Acts is the history of the church, Christianity, the first 30 years. And a story that doesn't end in chapter 28. It continues on uh, to this day, 2,000 years and counting. And so let's get to it here. Um, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell, meaning the power of death and hell itself will not prevail. And that's a good word. You know why? Because who's the church? Ultimately, the church is you and the church is me. And that word is good. And we face much adversity in this life. But God says, be of good cheer. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world and you with me. So let's dig in here because it's this awesomeness here. We begin our time on Malta with a snake. Now, it doesn't surprise me or the commentators that I was reading that after a month-long, month-long ordeal, lost at sea, which culminated really with an assassination plot on that boat that was wrecking and a perilous shipwreck itself, that the first thing that we encounter here on the island, number one, is a viper. Verse 3, 
That's amazing. And, and what's going on here? Why does God allow this in the story? Well, it really points us back to the reality of spiritual warfare that comes upon us from unseen realms to those who are serving in the process of serving there comes the viper and so it's God's little hint to reveal who's truly been working diligently behind the scenes from the first day the church was born he's not mentioned every chapter but he's there the viper hidden in the underbrush of the details of the chapter the gospel going forth from day one. Acts chapter two, the church is born. The Holy Spirit comes and fills people's lives, regenerating them with life. And in this goodness and grace, they're speaking and praising God in languages that they've never known. And other people who speak those languages are hearing God's praise in their own mother tongues and they're saying, what's going on? And everybody's saying, the Lord is visiting us with goodness and salvation and some are being saved. And then there he is, the viper. They're drunk. They're drunk and that hideous, slanderous, serpent-like lie to distract and to sway people from the knowledge of the truth, blinding their eyes so they cannot come to the glorious gospel and be saved. Oh my goodness, and you see him all the way through, all the way through every chapter, but he's hidden because Paul will tell (laughs) of his own situation which he knows, to the Ephesians and say, the struggle isn't seen. What you can see in people's faces, it's behind the scenes. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Listen to this for some bone-chilling, sobering news. But your struggle is against spiritual rulers spiritual authorities, powers of darkness in unseen realms. This is what God calls his enemy. That's why he calls him the serpent. That's his nickname. And here he is, biting those who serve the Lord. Look at this Revelation 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon, Satan, was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, the word devil means slanderer. He's always telling us lies about God and telling God lies about us. He's a slanderer. And Satan in the Hebrew means enemy or adversary. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so, yeah, so we know who's behind the typhoon that came to try to drown Paul before he could get to the Caesar's uh, court there and testify of God's saving power, the power of God unto salvation before Nero and his uh, court of dignitaries who wants to kill him before that happens. The prince of the power of the air, the servant, is waiting for him on the island kind of thing. Yes, indeed. We'd rather drown Paul in the Adriatic than have him testifying before Nero. Somebody could get saved, and we can't have that. And who do you think inspired the guys (laughs) on the boat to assassinate him? It's not enough to try to drown him, but he might escape. So who's hissing and telling the guys, if you lose the prisoners, you'll lose your lives, so you better kill the prisoners. And guess what? Paul is a prisoner. So he had to be rescued. Why? Because of the serpent. The serpent, and this is what Jesus, how Jesus describes the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, quoting John chapter 8, and Jesus our Lord. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he's speaking his native tongue, for he's a liar and the father of all lies. And there he is. Well, So looking back on the 27 chapters uh, and the one chapter before us, uh, it brings to mind the words of a famous hymn 
I love this hymn, and I hope that we do it soon. Martin Luther, uh, 1527, penned this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. And that's what we've seen. (laughs) That's what we see today. And that's what you will always see, because there's no plan, no strategy, no counsel that will prevail against the Lord, to, to quote Proverbs there. So uh, Dr. Luke gets us situated on the island, and it's called Malta. Uh, they learn what they already know. They are experienced sailors, uh, and they know Melita. They've been there, but they've never been on, on that random port. They've never been washed up on shore there. That's not where the boats usually go, so they didn't recognize it. They get there, they go, aha, we're on Malta. And so... And they land at St. John's, uh, St. Paul's Bay, now that it's called that. And uh, I got a picture of the bay that scholars kind of did the math and, and think that this is the bay. Now, if you're going to shipwreck, I highly recommend this <laughs> island <laughs> because that just looks, it's calling to me. I, I don't want to go the way they went and sucked in and blown over and washed up. Uh, but yeah, that's beautiful, huh? That's the thing about the Bible. It's verifiable truth. The things, the places, the dates, the names, and there are hundreds. You go there and there it is. You just dig a little. Oh, there it is. Right? Why? Because it's true. So moving on, um, uh, the natives are described with the King James word, which is from the Greek, uh, barbarians. Now, the word has changed. It originally, the Greeks called anybody who didn't speak Greek bar Bar-ians. Why? The same way that we, when we hear language that we don't understand, where they're like, what did he say? Oh, it's a blah, 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 right? But only they said it. It's bar, 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 right? So if they couldn't understand you, they would call you a bar-bar-ian, you see. Now, the word changed nuances, didn't it? It became a barbarian was a savage, And so it is properly translated native because these are no savages. They have unusual kindness. And the word for kindness there is philanthropia, where we get the word. Oh, you guys, this is in your first rodeo. I'll tell you that. They express their human kindness, not with mere words, but in good deeds. And they build a fire which of course cannot save them, that they're nice, because nice doesn't count to God. Does not matter. Good goodness, human goodness, without the Savior's blood, applied to your account, means nothing. He says, if you clothe yourself with your best deeds possible, it's like, whew, there's something, you guys, yeah, filthy rags is what Isaiah 64 and verse 4 uh, says somewhere around there our righteousness, but filthy rags. And so, yeah, it's not nice people who go to heaven, it's saved people who have faith in God who go to heaven. So, But nice beats mean, <laughs> just saying. So it's a check, that, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, so the storm hasn't fully abated yet. There's still gray, chilly drizzle hanging out and they're soaking wet, their teeth chattering, What's Paul doing? Far from sitting like Chippy, uh, dazed and staring off into the distance, wondering how God could let all of this happen to him uh, in the wake of all that he's been through, two long years in prison for being obedient to God, three legal investigations with false accusations and slander, three three assassination plots, and one uh, just recently on the ship, as I mentioned. And then shipwreck number four. Shipwreck number four. And where is he? He's just caught his breath. It's cold. It's dark. Is he in the fetal position muttering to himself, nobody knows the troubles <laughs> I've seen or he's singing another classic known to some Christians in bad times as, no one loves me, this I know. 
All my troubles tell me so. No. No, he's not an immature Christian. He's not a self-absorbed believer. He's an other-centered man, and the other-centered man is lending a hand. Paul knows his responsibility, and as we mentioned before, it's the model. It's the model, because people are watching. Honestly, honestly, it's not so much what comes out of a person's mouth. It's how they live. It's how you're living in through your troubled times. That's what I'm watching. That's how we know who is who. God will shake you upside down and you only know what's inside the pants pockets until he shakes you and then you find out, oh, this was in your pockets. Well, it's the same way when you go upside down, you know, and it shakes you a little bit, it comes out of the heart. And then we see, oh, we didn't know that was in there, good or bad. You see, so yeah, he knows eyes are watching me. So yeah, so setting aside his own pain, his own worries, his own disappointments, whatever he's feeling, you know, the great apostle Paul, writer of 13 New Testament books, gathers sticks for the fire, verse three. Yeah, so the natives started the fire as a kindness, as we read, but if you want a fire to keep going, you know what? it will require more kindling, right? And it appears nobody wants to leave the cozy fire to do that. Oh, they all see the fire dying out, but it's warm and it's wonderful. And, and oh, oh no, who among us is gonna get up and do what nobody else wants to do and go look, poking around under the wet, cold, dark underbrush to find something dry when it's raining, good luck with that. Who wants to leave the cozy, you know, put down my cup of cocoa and, you know, whatever they were drinking and, you know, go do what nobody else wants to do. Only the one who wants to be the greatest in God's sight would stand. Because Jesus' disciples said, Lord, We're tired of fighting over which one is greatest. Peter thinks he's the greatest. I think I'm the greatest. Would you just settle it right now? This is what they said. Would you just tell us which one of us is greatest? And he said, the one of you that's the slave of everybody else. Heaven looks down there and goes, he's the greatest. And it's usually just the opposite of what we think. We think, oh yeah, of course, the prisoner, the lowlife, Uh, The one who doesn't matter and doesn't count and is least significant, he's the one who gets up and does what nobody else will do because he's the lowest. And God says, wrong. He's the highest. You see? So Paul, Paul knows this stuff. Paul's smart. Paul wants to add to his heavenly bank account. That's what, you know, that's not that. Paul, Paul doesn't have a problem with doing things with an eye toward reward, he, he tells us to do it. Run to win the prize, he says. So there he is. That's what he's doing. Uh, so you would think among 276 men, young, deckhands, strong, would see a guy in his 60s sitting there being through what they were, had gone through and knowing the indebtedness to this man who took charge, and because of his prayers, God spared them, which they all heard, you would think one of them would have just said, hey, sit down. Sit down, old man, I got this. Nope. So he gets up and he's serving with a happy heart. He's not serving like, you know what? Because what you just did there was nullify any reward, you see. So what's the asher? And you just start slamming dishes down on the cupboard to make everybody know how mama's feeling, you know? (laughs) We always knew when my mom wasn't happy in the kitchen when she was putting plates away, you know? They just went down a little hard, you know, and everybody know. Okay, yeah. So the viper, you know, no good deed goes unpunished because nothing irritates a serpent more than a Christian serving the Lord, doing good deeds, nothing. 
We've got to stop you from doing this. We've got to stop the servant from being helpful and going forward. To stop it. So the next time you want to be helpful, remember this. Right? Oh, servant of the Lord. Just know the serpent doesn't like it when you serve and do kind things. And he's going to try to teach you a lesson. Right? And so, yeah, the creature is called a creature. Not just the word snake is used, but the word is quite literally the beast. With interesting evil overtones of this whole spiritual warfare thing and theme that's going on here. Uh, guess who's called the beast by the same exact word? The Antichrist. The Antichrist is called, as you know, the beast. I've got Revelation 13 uh, I think over there, one of the heads of this vision of the, the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound. So the Antichrist is going to get a shot to the head and he's going to die. And then Satan himself will possess him and he will rise from the dead to imitate Jesus' resurrection. He has a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed who? The beast. Same word. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked who is like the beast. You think God's trying to make a point there. He's a wild animal who can wage war against death. And so... Yeah, there's a correlation between what's going on on the island and all wickedness that will one day culminate in one man who's a world ruler. He may be alive today, maybe. It's within the realm of possibility, given uh, that all the signs in Matthew 24 are checked off completely. So it could, could happen. And uh, uh, good news, if you're a new believer, the Lord has promised this, and I'll quote the Lord. Because you've been faithful to me, I will keep you from the tribulation that will come upon the whole earth because you love me. Now, that's some pretty good news because some bad stuff is coming, but you won't see any of it. You may see hard times. You may see some tribulation, but you will not see the tribulation, the seven-year period that brings an end to human history. And this is all connected here, and God is preaching a sermon through what is actually happened to Paul here with a physical creature that now. Now, follow along with me, because his response is incredible. Verse 5, and Paul cries out, why God? I can't take any more of this. I, I, can't you see I'm trying to serve you? Uh, you know, we're not even three hours out from a shipwreck. This is the last straw. I'm canceling all my volunteer work on planning center. <laughs> I'm done, okay? You know, so verse five, which is harder to see because it's not really there. Um, it says, Paul turns and lashes out. Look, you lazy sluggards. If one of you deckhands would have been willing to pitch in, and mind you, if it weren't for me, you guys wouldn't even be alive. Had you shown a little gratitude, maybe I wouldn't have had to been bitten. No, what does he do? He keeps his cool, shakes it off, like he's flicking off a little mosquito. Whatever, viper. Into the fire you go, where you belong. Serving, singing, great is thy faithfulness, you know. I, I have, uh, he says, I've, I have God's promise. I have the Holy Spirit in me. He'll take care of me. He always has. He, he is right now, and he always will. So let's go forward. Verse 6, love it. The unusually kind natives are unusually discerning as well. Now, for an unenlightened ancients without one ounce, without one Bible verse to go on, uh, they are leaning in the right direction with their theology. Wrongdoers will be judged. It's just a matter of time. And they can see, they see Paul's in the orange jumpsuit and uh, guarded by a soldier. So they, they put two and two together and they do a bit of theology. 
and they think, well, he's had a bit of good luck there uh, with the uh, surviving the shipwreck, but ultimately no amount of good luck is going to stop justice from prevailing. So how do they know 1 Timothy 5.24 before Paul writes it? The sins of some men are obvious, going ahead of them to judgment, but the sins of others do not surface until later, and so too their judgment. Here's Here's their takeaway. Sooner or later, judgment comes. Why? How do they know that? The soul knows. God gave us a conscience. He's equipped every human he's ever made with a conscience that tells them general ideas that will help them come to know him. So the conscience tells us, do wrong, you will be punished ultimately. The problem is, is that we think others are the wrongdoers and not ourselves. You know, our sins are civilized sins, but everyone else's sins deserve judgment except our sins, right? And we kind of whitewash our sins. We call them like mistakes. You know, I didn't really mean to. And you know what? But Jesus says, you know what? When you're angry in your heart, it's akin to murder. When you want to see drop dead, you know, he says, when, when you're looking where you shouldn't look, men, you're committing adultery on your wife in the privacy of your own heart. So yeah, sir, you're a wrongdoer no matter what you look like on the outside, on the inside. And God gave them a conscience that says, oh, you know, when you see something like this happening, it's just because of the general truth of the universe that God put in all of our hearts, do wrong and you will pay the price. And we've all done wrong, so we all must pay the price. Therefore, God gave you the conscience, not not to give you a hard time, but to prepare you as a fearful sinner who knows, oh my goodness, I'm a wrongdoer, and I'm going to be punished for this wrongdoing. God just doesn't wink, wink when he sees somebody who's a wrongdoer. He says he's he's a just God. We've got to pay for that. So he sent his son to pay for your wrongdoing. He lays down willingly. He says, put all of their sins on my account and strike. And he did. Wow. That's love. And they know about it. They need some clarification. True. But they're being prepared. Now, The natives think they're seeing the universe get its uh, recompense on this guy through the form of a a viper's bite. But then their theory gets turned on its head. And after Paul doesn't swell up and his hand doesn't turn that ghastly green black that dead flesh gets, you know, it doesn't happen. He's not convulsing on the ground. There's no foam there. There's no blood coming out of his ears or whatever. There's no raging fever. In fact, they look at him, and they're waiting, and they're waiting with some kind of morbid curiosity. Is it going to happen? And he's smiling. He's laughing. He's learning names. He's making friends. What's going on here? And so they change their minds. This is no criminal. This is a god. Well, they're on the right track again. Again. Why? Paul's close association with Christ, who is God, who lives within him, and Paul is shining the light. They sense that. They detect the spirit of God on a mere man. They're just a little confused. They come to a really wrong conclusion, but they're, they're on the scent They're on the trail of they smell something more than merely a man. Because mere men don't do what he's been doing and how he's been behaving. And now he gets bit. And he he doesn't seem to be concerned at all. He's got this peace that doesn't make sense. He's different from everybody else. He must be divine. No, they're going to say, listen, we're not divine. But we can tell you about the one who is who lives in our hearts. And so that's how it happens. And that's what God has called all of us to do, even when we get bit, you know, to glorify God, to be the fragrance of Christ. This is what's happening there. As 2 Corinthians chapter 2 says, from 
Paul's life and from every believer's life comes the fragrance, the aroma of Christ himself, the aroma of life. And those around us can, can smell the fragrance and, and they either come and they're drawn to find life in him or they remain in death. That's why Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 4, verse 5, live uh, with wisdom toward outsiders. This is part of the reason he knows I don't need to panic. They're watching me. I want them to see a man who can trust God like that. And unbelievers really take note and they say, aha, something divine there when they see us acting more than mere mortals. For example, when we forgive those who have crushed us, that's not a human mere man thing to do. Because when you get crushed, you want to crush back. I told first service, we had a, a family in our congregation. How does this happen? Uh, a drunk driver slams into mama with one of the, the one of five of her kids, and the kid survives. But mama goes to be with Jesus. And that kid stood in court and looked in the face of that mom. That drunk driver and said first thing I want you to know is I forgive you from the bottom of my heart because your sins are the same as mine and Jesus came to die for our sins and so I hope with God's grace that you too will find the joy of forgiveness of sins that's what she says and there's, there was a hush why because that's not mere man there that's not that's not mortal man somebody's saying that's different that what what is that i smell something higher than flesh and blood is in the room right and so we got it we got so many opportunities to do that oh my goodness to, to turn the other cheek who does that who goes the extra mile who gives their enemy a lemonade when he's thirsty like jesus said is he thirsty and you hate him and he hates you Bake him a cake. That's what he says. Who does these things? Well, when you do them, it's not you doing them. It's your father in you. And they smell that and they go, something divine here, something. And they're drawn. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine in a way that others may see me and come and have Life And so, yeah, the natives are on the right track and soon they'll get the proper clarity that they need. Uh, let's go two more verses, just as kind of a wrap-up PS because they're kind of connected because Paul is going to be healed in the sense so that he can bless others. That's a pattern we see in the Bible. Verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were uh, lands belonging to the leading man of the island, the governor, it says in the Greek, the first man of the island, named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted in the back room there. They're all enjoying three days of hospitality. Where's, uh, where's grandpa? He's in the back. He's got this recurrent fever and dysentery. Dr. Luke is telling you what the disease was. And Paul went in to see him, and after that, he prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. And so, yeah, that's an amazing thing there. Let's talk about this fruitful ministry. Now, a season of rest. God, listen, God knows your life. He knows when you've gone through it and you need a break. It's not always cloudy gray. The sunshine comes through, always. After God has accomplished what he's trying to do in you and through you, there's a break. I love when Jesus said, uh, come away with me, guys. Let's go to a, a, and be alone to a quiet place where we can rest a while. And this is going to happen. Later we find out it's three months of this. Uh, warm beds, hospitable people, good food, and a fruitful ministry because after Publi Publi Publius' father 
is healed. The entire island with all of their sick people flock to the front patio area of Publius House and they get uh, healed as well. And so this is an idea here that the Lord is showing us is that just in an interesting fulfillment of Mark 16, I think I sent that over, Spencer. They will pick up snakes with their hands, check. And when they drink deadly poison, deadly venom, (laughs) it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on sick people and they will get better. Oh my goodness, this just just exactly happened, right? And so Paul's aware of these scriptures and these truths and that's what God is doing here. I just want you to notice, look, the, the snake bites God says, I'm going to use this situation to enhance your effectiveness and fruitfulness. And the reason I heal you is so that you can be a healing agent to others. That's amazing. That's what he does. Hear what God is saying. See what God is doing here. He causes us to overcome evil so that we can be a source of help and healing to others. So we've got to close out reflecting on this thing here. How many snake bites have you suffered in your lifetime? Probably quite a few. Painful divorce, which is like a a living death for children. Um, Betrayals, slander, violence, abuse, injustices, addictions, thorns in the flesh, the serpent bite. It happens, you know. And you know what? Deadly poison gets injected into your soul. You're nauseated. You have paralysis. And look at you. You're in church. You shook it off by God's grace. Look at you. Trying to be helpful. Look at you. Sharing the word of God and what's happening. The fever of those you share with is lifted and they become whole. Why? Because God caused you to prevail and that snake bite, it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work. God uses it for his glory, you know? And even if you might be thinking, you know what? Well, the snake bite in my case was uh, my own fault. You know, because I like to play near viper holes, you know, and and I, I stuck my hand underneath. I, I heard a rattle underneath the porch. I hear the rattle and I stick my hand in there, you know, and it came out. Guess what? Bit, <laughs> you know, like King David <laughs> on the rooftop. He hears the rattle. <laughs> Bite. Samson loves the ladies. He loves a gal named Delilah. Right? Noah, he liked the bottle. And his boys have to come into the tent and find him drunk and forgot to put his jammies on. That's pretty nasty. But I got good news. All three men, they're survivors. They repent, they look to Jesus on the cross, they shake it off into the fire, and they go on to prevail and to be blessed by God, just like we do. Pastor Ross Reinman, lead pastor of Calvary Chapel, The Rock, Santa Rosa. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.